It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast, the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Broering. As always, it's presented by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lending. We are in the thick of all kinds of sports action going on. We got NFL, we got college football, we got college basketball well underway. We are going to talk about all of those things. We got uh, a gambling segment uh, in which uh, I would suggest most of you start to fade me, although I'm going to make a vow in the gambling segment that you, you may want to listen to. I'm going to make a vow. Probably isn't going to come true, but I'm going to make that vow. And then my favorite portion of the podcast where you can ask me a question on any topic, make sure to hit Rick up. He's the one that compiles these questions. Go to Twitter, hit up hashtag AskSkinnyAnything. You know, Rick, I haven't even looked at Twitter in the last couple of days because it's the bye week and I'm trying to take a little downtime. Not much, but a little. I haven't checked to see if I still got a blue check mark. You still got one? (laughs) I never had one in the first place. I'm not big time like you. Well, I'm certainly not going to pay for it. I can tell you that much. I, you know what? Someone actually asked that in the Ask Any Anything questions, whether or okay. not you would pay. So there we there go. We go. <laughs> there we go. Starting we're, hot. We're, You're predicting formally, questions I'll, now. I'll, I'll formally answer that when we come to it then. <laughs> well, that sounds like you already did. Took a little, little suspense yeah, exactly. on that one. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Skinny, we're going to do it a little bit differently this week since it is bye week. We're going to start with my favorite topic, and I know one that's near and dear to your heart. Let's react to some college basketball games that happened this week. And we had the first games of the season on Monday night. Most of the local teams played. And since then, we've had a few more. We don't typically talk about Louisville here on this show, but uh, we're going to after last night. Bellarmine beats Louisville 67-66. Louisville lost to a Division II team in a televised game last week. Now they lose to a a third-year D1 team that's in their own city. Uh, safe to say the Kenny Payne era is off to a shaky start. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the, the finger can be pointed at the Chris Mack era for leaving the cover dry to some degree, but you're right. I mean, um, and for those that maybe don't know, probably most do that listen to the podcast, but if you don't know, Bellarmine is literally in the same city. They are located in Louisville. They were a Division II program in the same league that NKU used to be in when they were Division II, but much like NKU went Division One, Bellarmine soon after went Division One, um, and they've got a nice little program. I mean, they had a couple of nice wins last season. Um, they, they, they actually, they, if I remember, they won their league, right? But they were eligible to play in the NCAA tournament. They won their conference tournament, did they not? Correct. But the, yeah. the, and uh, let me say something about that, because I hear everybody complaining about that situation, that they weren't allowed to play in this way tournament last year when they qualified. And now that they won this game, everyone's thinking, oh, they're going to qualify again and not be allowed in the NCAA tournament. That is a good rule. It's a it, it makes right. sense it, why they have that rule in place. I heard broadcasters last night saying that's an archaic rule. It's not. The reason it's in place is to try to keep a program from taking advantage of a really good class of athletes. Which is right. right. You shouldn't be making the decision to go Division One off the idea of, hey, we've really got a lot of talent coming in right now. Let's try to do this thing now while we're good, and maybe we'll make we'll make a run and build our program on the backs of that. You should be making it off of the financials and everything else that you have in place, not what type of talent you have in a given year. Right. So, just because you're good right now doesn't mean you should be eligible for the NCAA tournament. It's it's a good rule. Yeah, I, I could argue four years is maybe a year too long, but but yes, I I, I you can't be eligible right away. I, I I concur with that rule. Well, I mean, but the whole idea. I mean, I guess now with guys shuffling through programs so fast, maybe it's it's a little a year that too long. That used to be a full recruit. Yeah, that used to be a full recruiting cycle. Right. The whole idea is, hey, you can't bring in a, a freshman recruiting class and then say we're going to make the jump to D one because in in the fourth year we're going to be good. Although, as you mentioned, that cycle's never is <laughs> no longer no longer. Uh, Although germane. I would argue one school that it might. Bellarmine, they they might keep a few more four year guys compared to everyone else. 
Yeah, that was uh, that, that. That's quite a bad start for the Kenny Payne era, no question. Well, I mean, you know, you you mentioned Chris Mack, and there's a little truth to that, but he didn't tell Kenny Payne not to go get any guards in the transfer portal. Bro. Well, you know, I, I, listen, I'm not fully absolving, but you did take over a bit of a mess. There's no question about that. Yeah, I don't think people realized how big of a mess Chris Mack was in, though, while he was there too. Yeah. Like yeah. this, this yeah. job is a mess, and it's going to be a serious rebuild and the idea that you would hire a coach who had zero head coaching experience at Louisville is just ridiculous but I'm gonna tell you right now Kenny Payne may figure it out down the line at some point but this was a bad hire it just didn't make sense yeah no he needed a head coaching job somewhere else there's no question about that and they brought him in to recruit and one he didn't bring in any guards to the transfer portal which they desperately needed in the offseason and two they're not recruiting well for next year's class either. They're going to miss out on DJ Wagner, who was supposed to be a lock. Bring back Rick. Bring back Rick. Well, Bring back Rick. You know, that's an interesting point because at this point, now the IARP thing went through. They really didn't get in any type of trouble. I've seen that from a lot of different people. Do you think there's any chance that they would bring back Rick Pitino? I think it's very possible. I mean, they brought back Bobby Petrino once in football, did they not? They did. I would say there's been too much that has gone on, and he is he was too toxic for them to where well, they would I can never also, do I it. I can also argue that, that, that by the time you would make this move, you're not firing Kenny Payne after this season. It may be right. after next season if things don't go well. At that point, Rick's, what, 72 years old? Yes, Rick would be too old. That's the issue. But you also get into this spot where if this gets as bad as I think it might get within the next year plus – Maybe you do look at it as almost an interim desperation type situation and you do something crazy. Like go out and hire Cal when Cal things don't go right at Kentucky. <laughs> I, I do not see that happening. The Rick Pitino thing will happen before the Cal thing will happen. Yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. Let's go on to the other game that should have been the most interesting game on paper, but turned out to be a blowout just like all the rest locally. Kent State beat NKU 79-57 at NKU to open the season. Sincere Carey is the returning player of the year in the MAC. We've talked about him on this podcast a few times, Skinny. He was unbelievable. He had 20 points on only 12 shots to go with seven assists. But even more importantly than that, he locked Marquez Wark up. Yeah, I said on the podcast, I thought I thought he was clearly going to be the best player on the floor, but I thought NKU might have players two, three, and four in the pecking order on the floor. I read a recap in, on Link NKY from, from Dan Weber, who was longtime sports uh, editor and columnist of the Kentucky Post. It is now the sports editor of LinkNKY.com. And um, you were there as the color analyst, so I trust your opinion as well on this, obviously. But but he he made it sound, as I was reading it, like it was just a physical mismatch with just physicality of Kent State. Was that true? Well, Kent, yes, to some extent. What Kent State does really well, and they've been doing this, if you look at their their like Ken Palm numbers or any of their stats, they have fouled as much as any team in the country. I mean, seriously, they're I like, like in teams the, like that. Yeah, I like teams like that. But if you look at most teams that foul a ton, it's a lot of bad teams typically. Kent State has not been a bad team. What they've done is they've made this a part of their strategy to where they push and grab and bump and are so physical with you on every possession that the refs, yeah, they call a lot of fouls on them, they but it gets to a point. It. Exactly. It gets to a point where it says, you know what? We can't just keep stopping the game on every possession here. We got to let you play a little bit. So 
a lot of teams don't aren't able to match that level of physicality. They start whining. They start looking for calls and it gets them out of their game. And I think uh, NKU had a little bit of that going on combined with the fact that sincere carry was able to take Marquez work out of the game completely. And I think that left NKU a little bit shell shocked. They couldn't get anything to go in. I think they didn't score for like the, they didn't make a field goal for like the first six plus minutes of the game. And then right. in the second half, they had a similar situation where they just couldn't get the lid off the basket early. They were down by 13 early in the game in the first half, battled back and were down by just three after a made three pointer to start the second half. And then they very quickly got back down by like 13 or 14 again, uh, midway through the second half. So pretty much got out of hand at that point. But one thing that's kind of interesting is you, you look at NKU the last four years, really the first year they got off to a decent start. Initially they had, uh, they played Missouri fairly tough. Uh, they beat ball state. They, they really were close to beating Arkansas on the road that year. But since then, it's kind of been slow starts for this NKU group. They were five and eight two years ago. They were five and eight last year. They got they got spanked by this Kent State team two years ago early in the non-conference schedule. So I was talking to a former player after the game the other night, and he mentioned to me, he's like, I just don't even worry about these early games now with with this system because the defense is so field-based and chemistry-based with the that style that they play where it's kind of the matchup zone where they're all flying all around and and trying to communicate everything. He says, it just takes so much time to get good at that, that they're, they're going to start slow. And you look at the way things have gone the last few years. And and I feel like there is some merit to that. Yeah, it's probably fair, but, but I'm going to counterpoint it too. But, you know, you may look back and Kent state might be the best team in the Mac when all said and done. I don't know that maybe they are, but, but maybe they are. I mean, since sincere carry is clearly a first team, all Mac level player. So that, that speaks volumes. And, and, you know, maybe they will be. Um, I, I buy that except for the fact that you do have a chunk of guys back. Now, yeah. do I expect all five guys to be back? And No, that's not going to happen. You do have a pretty good core of dudes back, though. That's where I'm not sure I can. I get it, but I don't completely buy it. And, and at the end of the day, maybe that part didn't matter as much as you as you mentioned. You didn't make shots. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And this is one game. I mean, they could come out next week against UC and play really well, and then we'll forget about this. But they were a little sloppy in the the Transylvania exhibition to close the the preseason. And I was a bit concerned coming out of that just to see how they would would open up knowing Kent State was really good. And again, Sincere Carey, I think, will be the best player they face this year. And that includes going up against UC and Washington State. I also right. think Kent State might be the best team period that they played. Kent State was fantastic, right. and I think this game told me more about Kent State than it did NKU. But look, it, I mean, you're right. I think because there were returning players within the system, a lot of us had higher expectations for how NKU was going to start this season. That's just Rick, one game, but... Yeah, I, I thought they had a legit shot to win it. The line was basically one point either way. I think NKU closed the one-point underdog, if I remember. So Vegas kind of thought the same thing, and it just didn't turn out that way. Yeah, Sam, Sam Vinson rolled his ankle in the first half of this game. He came back in, but that's that's something to watch because there was a picture that came out after the game that showed it was a pretty severe ankle turn there. And also uh, Chris Brandon pulled down 17 rebounds, one off his career high. He is tied for the lead in the nation right now through uh, three days of – the college basketball season. So we'll see what happens next with the Norse. They'll play UC Claremont on Saturday and then UC next Wednesday. They'll host them at Truist Arena. All right. That is such such a weird though. You're playing UC Claremont, kind of a get right game. And then it's UC Claremont, take off the Claremont. Now you're playing UC. (laughs) The real UC. Claremont to the real, yeah, to the real UC. I was trying to explain that to our buddy, Taryn Bland, when I uh, did (laughs) Mo's show. 
on Wednesday. And he was like, wait, what was that? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. It doesn't make any sense. UC Claremont and then for real UC. For real UC, yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's look at the Xavier game. 96-73 win over Morgan State. The reintroduction of Sean Miller, if you will. UTEP transfer Sule, boom, hit four threes, finished with 23 points, lead all scorers in his XU debut. But really for me, Skinny, the, the things that stood out were a couple of the role guys. I know my message board at musketeerreport.com was really excited about Kiki Tandy getting the start and playing 27 I minutes. About that. Yeah, I, I was that actually a little more impressed by Jerome Hunter. He came off the his bench. Line was good. He had his 11 line points, great. nine rebounds in 17 minutes. The biggest thing for me, though, Skinny, is he didn't sniff a three. He played a role that, to me, suits his game better, but also suits this team much better. And and I think that's kind of what Xavier fans are looking for, is some more discipline and utility out of some of those role guys who, who sort of lost their way last year. And, and then hopefully some good shooting, which obviously they got from Sule Boom in this one. Yeah, for Jerome Hunter especially, I mean, he, you're right, he didn't hunt threes. He was 5 of 7 from the floor. 11 points, 9 rebounds is not going to happen against everybody. It's going to happen against the Morgan States of the world. But there's a nice confidence boost to say, hey, dude, do the things we're asking you to do, and you can have a role for our team. I think that's exactly right. Sean Miller made a comment about him on his coach's show Monday or Tuesday night, whenever that was. And he said that at this point in his career, you know, Jerome – hasn't really quite caught on. He hasn't had the opportunity to play in an NCAA tournament yet. He said, Jerome really just wants to be a part of something. And he's willing to buy in and say, what can I do to help us achieve something as a group? And uh, I think they've done a really good job of building up some confidence for Jerome, but within a role and not, not giving him confidence by saying, yeah, you've got a green light shoot anytime you're open, but giving him confidence of saying, Hey, you're really good at, rebounding and being a versatile defender for us. And you can be really productive in that role. We need that out of you every night. We don't care if you do anything else. And it seems like he's catching on to that. But like you said, I mean, it's it's Morgan State. I don't think any of us doubted that Jerome Hunter would be a good player in the MEAC. And, you know, I think that's the same way. I don't get too worried about what Sule Boom did in this game, scoring 23 points. It's like he averaged 19 points a game in a better conference than the MIAC when he was in Conference USA playing for UTEP. So I'll wait until he does it against Indiana or against Big yeah, East right. level competition. Right, right, right. But it's still a, a good a start, debut. There's a starting point. Yeah, there's a starting yeah. point, though. Better than him going two of 13 from the floor against Morgan State. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, let, me, let me ask you about Kiki Tandy. Yep. Um, I guess that took me off guard. It probably didn't take you off guard that he started. Well, uh, I, let me point something out there. Adam Kunkel has right. a bum ankle. Yes, so I think yes, it was I, a little bit more that. about that than Adam Kunkel. Or I mean, I than uh, Kiki Tandy earning it. But yeah. But it didn't look like he hunted shots. I heard he played pretty good defense. I didn't see much of the game. I caught a little bit on the whip around. Listened to a little bit of it because I had a speaking engagement Monday night. But it seemed like he played whatever role they asked pretty well. Uh, yeah, I think people were a little shocked just to see him kind of fit in out there. Now, I, you know, reading my message board, you would have thought he had... 15 points, 20 rebounds, four assists. You know, I mean, like you would have thought he w was Russell Westbrook in his prime. Um, when I watched the game, I thought, you know, he was the first guy on the team to get back cut by Morgan State's Princeton offense. Uh, there was a couple other times where he just got beat off the dribble. So I thought his defense was better than it's been in the past and he looked more serviceable, but there are still clearly some issues and and we'll see how much those get magnified when he when he plays but, against better competition. Right, and I and I said that to somebody too who told me what how well they thought he played. I, I made the same points you did, but he made a point back to me, and I kind of agree with it. I mean, here's a kid that 
A, could have left the program. You could argue should have left the program. Um, a kid who could have just said, you know, I'm just going to play out the string. And apparently he's, you know, it's, it's obviously Adam Kunk related, but he, he you're still not going to give him a starting spot just to give me. He apparently right. at least earned that through practice. No, fair point. I mean, he has been good in this preseason, at least to the point that and when I say good, I mean, comparative to last year and the year before that, where he was really playing himself into essentially a walk-on role where he was not going to get on the floor at all. He has been an obvious rotation guy for them during this preseason through practices and inner squad scrimmages. And then the, the secret scrimmage and exhibition, he has played a role. So do I think he's ahead of Adam Kunkel? No, I don't. I think Adam Kunkel's banged up right now, but I think this was a good opportunity to kind of reward him for the work that he's put in and even more so for the buy-in that he showed saying, I don't have to shoot every time I touch the ball. I can take care of the ball, not turn it over every time I touch it. And I can play a little bit better on the defensive end and be a little more in tune with what we're trying to do as a team. And, and to his credit, I think he did that in this game, but again, there were, there were still some issues on the defensive end for Kiki. He's not, not exactly a lockdown guy yet. No, but I, like I said, I, I think good for him. You know, yeah, to, to at least definitely. show that, to earn that. And just to stick with it. Right. I mean, this is right. a guy who was in the transfer portal, not last year, but the year before that. Before, right. Decided to come back and, and then stuck out again with a new coaching staff. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. He deserves credit for sticking with it. All right, let's move on to UC, who beat Chaminade, Division II Chaminade, 98-55 in their opener. Uh, for Cincinnati, I thought the shot distribution was exactly what you want to see. DeJulius had 15 shots. Landers Nolly, their newcomer transfer from Memphis, had 13 shots. Both attempted four three-pointers. And then uh, Davenport was next in line with, with 10 shot attempts. So, you know, DeJulius scores 24. Nolly has 19. They both lead the way. Anything else stand out to you from the, the UC game? No, but but I I, th- I think the fact Mike Adams Woods actually had a pretty efficient game too. But I I think between the three of those guys, the Julius Nolly Davenport, if you can somehow get them to shake out as your top three scores every night in some way, shape, or form, Jeremiah Jeremiah probably less than the other two guys will probably do that. I think that's a nice recipe for success. You you can't have two of them having an off game. You could certainly have one of them. I mean Jeremiah didn't shoot it great, but he did make three of seven threes. Um, I, I think you're right. I think that was that's kind of the distribution you want. And, and for Landers to score, um, that's what you need him to be. He's not going to be a 20-point-per-game guy, but can he be a 14 or 15? I think he can, and I think he has to be. Yeah, you mentioned Mike Adams-Woods in that point guard spot. I did notice it seemed like a, a kind of a straight platoon going on there between him and Rob Finnessy. They, neither one of them even played 20 minutes. I think it was like 19 for one, 18 for the other. Uh, Mike Adams-Woods seemed to have a, a more productive game, but I don't know that there was any clear edge between the two. And then there was a little bit of a committee at the five. It looked like Victor Locken got yeah. the start, but he only played 17 minutes. So but, they were kind of rotating also, guys there. Right. That's also a perfect game for Wes Miller to do that. I mean, Shamanad was... Pfft. Right. Yeah. Division two program. But uh, yeah, overall, I thought it was uh, was a solid first game for Cincinnati. And then finally, we have Kentucky 95, 63 winners over Howard to open the season. These games are are pretty meaningless, just like the UC one and Xavier ones that we talked about. But even still, I have to think this was exactly what UK fans wanted to see. Antonio Reeves led the way with 22 points. He was six of 12 from three-point range. C.J. Frederick added 20 points and was two of five from deep. The Cats were 11 of 24 as a team from beyond the arc, which is almost 46%. 
And Cason Wallace is two, one assist and two rebounds away from a triple-double. How about that for a start? Yeah, he he's going to be pretty good, isn't he? Yeah. And again, Oscar Shibway did not play. I, I will say nor, – Nor did Severe Wheeler. Nor did Severe Wheeler. That's right. So you're missing your, your, you're missing your two first-team preseason All-SEC players and the, and the, uh, the reigning national player of the year, and you still won by 32. I will say I, I mentioned I had a speaking engagement, and that was an early Kentucky start. So I was as I was driving to it, I – was listening to the pregame show. My Lord, Cal made this sound like they were playing 1974 UCLA. I mean, <laughs> you, you thought it's a tough one for. I've warned, I've warned everybody, and I'm not. We don't have severe. I'm like, okay, I, I'm noting you, dude. But no, I, I think that maybe they even exceeded his expectations with the way they played. So that wraps up the season openers for all the local teams. We're recording this on Thursday morning. Tonight, UC will be in action again as they host Cleveland State out of the Horizon League, one of NKU's conference foes. And then on Friday night, you'll have Duquesne at Kentucky at 7 p.m., Montana at Xavier at 8 p.m. And then, like I mentioned, Northern Kentucky will host Cincinnati Claremont on Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. So, And it gets, and it gets real for Kentucky next week because they got Michigan State and, and Gonzaga, Gonzaga next Sunday. Yeah, it heats up real quick. We've got the Cincinnati at NKU game on next Wednesday, which we will not. We'll talk about after it happens, but not after before it happens. it happens. So, um, looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. We we will discuss that on next week's show. But let's move on to some college football talk, Skinny. As the second edition of the college football playoff rankings came out this week, and there was some some big movement after last Saturday. Number one, Georgia. Number two, Ohio State. Number three, Michigan. Number four, TCU. Your reactions to the new top four in the college playoff rankings? That's probably the fairest that it could have shaken out. But the interesting one to me is Tennessee still sitting at five, which obviously still opens the door for two SEC teams to make it, correct? Correct. Let me ask you this. Did Tennessee almost help itself more by losing that game? it might have helped the league more, especially when LSU ended up beating Alabama. LSU is knocking on the door at number seven to crack into, into, into this as well. Um, I don't think it helped itself, but the, 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 the part that's the most interesting is they're going to win out in, in all likelihood. And they're going to sit there with the one loss. I don't see them ever going backwards. The only way they can go is forwards. And that's when TCU will more than likely eventually lose. You can certainly argue, and I'd be open to the argument for anybody that wants to argue it, that, that depending on how the, the loser of the Ohio State-Michigan games looks, that you could still keep them ahead of Tennessee, and that's certainly viable. But you could maybe have a playoff that's Ohio State-Michigan, Tennessee, and, and Georgia. Well, I wouldn't mind that, actually, the the two Big Ten teams and the two SEC teams. But well, that's how the, we said it was going to shake out all along when, when the SEC and the Big Ten started raiding other schools. Yeah, we're already there, right? Right. The, the problem I would have with either Ohio State or Michigan staying in and like both of them getting in, even if they don't win the Big Ten and Tennessee not, is you don't have the win Tennessee has. Tennessee is cr- currently number two in ESPN strength of record metric and number two in strength of schedule. It has wins against Alabama and at LSU. I Like no one else really has that resume from a win standpoint and certainly not Michigan or Ohio State. No, fair. I just don't like, so I, you know, it's funny because I guess if Tennessee had beaten Georgia, then they have enough big wins that it's almost impossible to keep them out, even if they didn't win the SEC championship. But it would have been interesting to see 
what would have happened had they lost that or had they won that game and and this all played out as it stands. I think you're right, Skinny. I think it's hard to see them going backwards because it's very unlikely that they're they're going to lose again. And if you look at, well, like TCU, for instance, they're a seven point underdog at Texas this weekend. They still have to play at Baylor and Iowa State stinks, but it's it's played everybody close recently. So who knows what happens there? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I do not see TCU going undefeated. So that opens the door right there. And then I guess you have to worry about Oregon and USC. But, but, but you don't. And here's why. I mean, listen, Oregon's played great. But if you want to compare losses, Tennessee's loss at Georgia was far more competitive than Oregon's curb stomping to Georgia in the opener. Right. But if Oregon wins the Pac-12, do you think a, a no. conference championship to go no. with that same loss puts them ahead of Tennessee? No, I don't. Absolutely not. You you, you each got a chance to play each other. And I get, I, I get that one played them at one point in the season, another played them at another point in the season, but that's too damn bad. I, I think I think if you'd have believed in what you're saying, Rick, you'd have Oregon ahead of Tennessee right now. And that's where I, I look and where, again, depending on how the Ohio State-Michigan loser looks in that loss, I, the loser goes below Tennessee, in my opinion, to your point and to your argument. But then I think that might be your four. Let's assume TCU is definitely out. Let's assume they yes. lose this week yes. to Texas and they're definitely out. Yes. Okay. And you're saying now, Oregon, you don't think Oregon is in even if they win it all, assuming Tennessee wins out. The only argument you could make is the argument that, that Oregon is in and the, and, the, and the loser of Ohio State, Michigan is out. That's the only argument you can make. At that point. Okay. And then do you, do you, what, how do you view USC kind of a similar situation? If they went out and win the the PAC 12, then they would be in that same spot as Oregon. Yep. They'd be out. All right. Well, I mean, I guess Clemson is, is sitting out there too, still at eight and one, but I think their loss to Notre Dame probably eliminates any, I mean, they would need absolute chaos ahead of them to happen. I think. Well, and their loss to Notre Dame now makes the Ohio state win over Notre Dame look better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Ohio state's going to win that Michigan game, but obviously we still I got some too, time to but, get into that, but, but get me a 42 39 game. And I can tell you that Michigan belongs in the four. They, they maybe weren't, aren't three and you certainly want to, I mean, you could certainly see the, the semifinals being a Tennessee, Ohio state and a, and a Michigan, Georgia. You know what? It seems like regardless of how it shakes down this year, we're at least going to get somewhat of a different look. And Alabama yes, is yeah. not going to be there. So yes. Uh, now L- LSU, which still has a couple of tough games remaining, they could throw a monkey wrench in if they go to the SEC title game and beat Georgia. But let's let's wait to talk about that down the road. Yeah. And that's just man, that that's hard to see LSU getting in with the two losses. I know, but they're but... sitting there at seven with two losses. That's pretty impressive to be sitting there at seven. It is. That is not not a lot of interest in terms of the games that happened this past week, but the Ohio State 21 to seven win over Northwestern. A lot of people were talking about it. Do you think that performance mattered at all, aside from making betters mad or is it just a, a win for Ohio State? A one off in the rain. And I you know you people well, Northwestern played in it, too. Yes, they did. I'm just it, yeah, I'm taking it as a one off. The one thing that is a little troublesome for, for Ohio State is. They don't seem to run the ball consistently well and sustain drives. They feel very reliant on big plays. But, does, I mean, hasn't that been the case with Ohio State for a while? Yeah, probably. But I thought in a game like this where you're just better in the trenches that you would at least, at, at the point you decide, okay, it's raining, let's sustain something on the ground that you would be able to do it. And they never really felt like they did it. But, yeah, listen, 
in a 12-week season, 12-game season, rather, you're going to throw a clunker or two in. I don't care who you are, where you are. It's going to happen, and you're going to have to find a way to win somewhat ugly. And if you win somewhat ugly and still win by a couple of touchdowns on the road, even if it's a team you overmatch, I just chalk it up to move on to next week. Yeah, I mean, the people talking about, like, does this impact their their chance to get in the college football playoff? It's like, no. I mean, uh, wh- what's the logic there, that they lose – to Michigan, and they still had a chance to get in, but this close win would keep them well, out. I mean, let me, let me let me tie it extremely close to home. How many times did we fret last year over UC's lack exactly. of style points, and it never mattered, and it exactly. shouldn't matter. It shouldn't, but but it's not going to matter in this case either. More than likely, Ohio State's going to end up undefeated and right. and not even have to to worry about that game at all. But there was more hand rigging than I felt necessary. Maybe it was because people felt Ohio State just didn't play well, and they're they're worried about some things going forward, but Listen, I, I, I was watching that game. Like you said, in the driving rain, I just didn't think it was really that big of a deal. And trust me, I was one of those frustrated betters too. that had a five team parlay with Ohio state. And I bet him down to 37 and felt really good about that and still can't get angry at him. I just chalked it up of one of those days, man, which yep. I didn't have you on my ticket, but I do. Yep. Uh, UC beat Navy 20 to 10 UK beat Missouri 21, 17, I thought, you know, the UK performance was about what you'd expect. They found a way to get in a win in a, in a pick em situation. UC definitely not really close to the number there. I think it was 19 and a half, and they, they win by 10. Anything to take away from those two games? Uh, UC just, again, struggles to sustain drives, too. They struggle to consistently run. I, I, the game against East Carolina is going to be a fun one, in my opinion, tomorrow night on Friday night. Yeah, it will be. Uh, we'll talk about more about that, that in our morning. betting yep. segment. But um, let, 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 and let me touch on the Kentucky one for a second. The play that the punter Colin Goodfellow made when the snap went over his head was so smart, so gutsy. I, I can't. Even, I'm sitting there watching, thinking, okay, put him down in there, and I just need the defense to come up with one more stop. They're going to have to go ninety some odd yards to drive the field. I feel really good. And as I'm thinking that in my head, the snap goes over his head. I'm yelling at him, kick it out of the bounds, kick it out of bounds. He scoops it up, turns to punt it, and then gets waylaid. The punt doesn't get blocked. Flag flies. And at the time, I even yelled out loud, oh, that's roughing the punter. And it turned out to be because the kid made a brilliant play. He didn't try to run with it. He just turned and tried to punt it, which is the rule. He did. He was he was in a punting motion, and they didn't block it. They tackled him. And unfortunately, he got carted off. But, I mean, he won the game with that play. <laughs> That's, that's a great way to end a sentence. Unfortunately, he got carted off, but he won the game. I, I, I had to call a couple of buddies of mine. I'm like, I, 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 said, I said, I've seen Kentucky lose games a thousand ways. I thought I was about to see it again. And I just walk, watched them win on a, it wasn't a walk-off because they actually had to play defense for a couple more snaps um, with just seconds to go when they punted, when they did punt it away. I said, I just watched them win on a walk-off roughing the kicker penalty. I'm not sure I've seen that. I don't. Roughing the punter. I don't think many of us have. That's that's pretty incredible. All right, Skinny, let's switch gears over to the NFL side. Bengals are on a bye this week. It'll, a little bit of a reprieve for you, beat writers. Although not much. You guys are still kind of working. No, we had Monday and Tuesday. We had to, we, we reported on a bunch of stuff. We met with all the coordinators. There was talk of Kevin Huber. We'll probably get into some of that. There was talk of some other things. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of taking – the one thing I do get to take is I get to take pretty much Friday through Sunday off, and that's kind of rare. So I'm good with that. There you go. Uh, let me start with this on the Bengals front. Do you think the Bengals are capable of replicating that performance from a rushing standpoint that they had against Carolina on Sunday? No, but I, I do hope it's something that unlocks you to the tune of 120 yards a game on a consistent basis. 
I, I just don't know if I, I, I got to see it again to believe it. That's where I'm at too. I mean, it, I think there are two things going on here. One, we saw that, okay, Joe Mixon does have something left in the tank. So if, if they get things on the right track and they can find some level of whether it's schematics or play calling or good blocking or whatever it is that, that, came together and made that work so well against Carolina. If they can get that on track consistently, it does feel like Joe Mixon is at least still capable of being that type of player. And I wasn't sure of that prior to Sunday's performance. So on that side of things, I I think it does mean something going forward. But in terms of will they be able to call plays like that, that seem to work perfectly together? Will they be able to block another defensive line the way they did Carolina? Well, you know, was that just a game where Carolina's kind of checked out to some extent and just didn't really seem to care? They were out drinking late or whatever the night before because their season is meaningless now. We'll find out as we go, but I'm a little more skeptical that they'll be able to do it again. But but like I said, at least at least Joe Mixon showed he's capable of that. Hey, listen, I was the one that preached early in the year that you got to be patient with with the gelling of the run game and all those things. But after eight games, when you would average 80 yards and 3.5 yards a carry, that's a pretty good sample size to go, uh, I don't know if they're ever going to really click. And for this to be the one game after the, those first eight games that you did this, I can hope that it shows that this continues to step forward in improvement. I do think it did um, it did reinvigorate all of our belief in, in Joe Mixon's not washed, and I think that's a good thing because at least that way you can take that part out of the equation, right? Um, but yeah, I'm not hanging my hat on the run game. I need to see it again more times than not. I mean, eight games versus one is a bigger sample size. I mean, maybe Zach Taylor and his coaching staff had a better idea of where Joe Mixon was at still. Well, well but- we mentioned they, they changed some stuff and I mean, they did some more pinning and pulling. They did, they did a hand, they did some more wide zone that they felt better with the guys could block that they struggled with early in the year. They, they did some of those things better. And, and right. that's, that, that part's a good thing. Right. My point was going to be, though, maybe maybe they already knew this. Maybe it wasn't a revelation of them that Joe Mixon still has some juice left and can still make plays. But I would think that after watching what you watched the first eight weeks of the season, at a certain point as a coach, you're losing some confidence in your guy of like, how many carries do I want to give this guy? Or if we're in a short yardage situation that we have to have, do I want to go with this guy? Is he even capable of doing what he did a season ago? And again, at least we, we is proven that, that the legs are still there. The agility is still there. He can still break a tackle. I mean, he just, he just looked like a different guy physically. Well, well, so. well, Rick, if you remember the, the Wednesday press conference before the Carolina game, I asked him, I said, will you assess Joe in all three phases as a runner, a pass blocker and a receiver? All he really mentioned was how well he'd done as a receiver. Yeah, it wasn't an answer that gave you a lot of confidence in how he felt about Joe Mixon's play. So uh, skinny, you are publishing a column today, Thursday, as we record this uh, about the Bengals at the bye week, which, you know, at the bye week, we're through nine games here. We're past the midway point, just past the midway point. Now with the 17 game schedule, I want to ask you about a few of these topics within your column where you kind of gave uh, oh, superlatives. The The first one I wanted to ask you about is your biggest surprise of the first half of the season. What would you go with as the biggest surprise? Yeah, the lack of consistency in the running game. I, I thought, you know, you got all these new linemen you brought in. Um, you know, we haven't noticed Cordell Volson in a negative way. One of his strengths was as a run blocker. So the assumption is he's doing a good job individually. 
But you go back to it, the first eight games, I mean, they averaged 81 yards, and he averaged 3.3 yards of carry, and as a group, they averaged three and a half yards. I I went into the season, remember, I, I, I told you I thought Joe Mixon was going to have a 2,000-yard from scrimmage season. I thought he was going to have a better year than he had last year with rushing touchdowns, and it really didn't come to fruition. And, and that's what surprised me the most, because you literally did upgrade at four different offensive line spots from a year ago. And some of that wasn't just to protect Joe Burrow. Some of that was to help you in, get even better in the run game, and it just never clicked until that last game. What about the biggest disappointment? I think it's got to be the two tackles, both of them. And all you have to do is look at their PFF grade, which I'm not, a, you know, I'm not the gospel of PFF like a lot of people are, but it does confirm a little bit about what your eyeballs see. You know, Jonah Williams' overall grade is 58.7. I'm doing this off the top of my head. They're really close. I think Lyle Collins is 58.6. That's it was, it was out of 100. Williams is 58.4. Collins is 58.7. Okay. So, so yeah. So both of them, if you were grading on a grade school level, right? I don't know where, how your grade scale were, but most of them are 90 to 100 is an A, 80 to 90 is a B, et cetera. Uh, it, no matter what scale you would probably go to if you were grading in school, what would those two grades be, Rick? A fail. Correct. Correct. I mean, Jonah's given up nine sacks. Lyle's given up four. Uh, he's given up two sacks, but he's also committed four of the offensive lines, eight penalties. Um, and those grades, the grades I'm giving you are overall grades. They're not broken down into rush blocking grade or pass blocking grade, but just overall, you know, Jonah, they gave him the fifth year option for next year. It's guaranteed money now. They're, they're, Jonah Williams is their guy through next year. They believed in him enough. He was a starter on a Super Bowl team. Lyle Collins, remember he came to town. I'm, I'm, I'm here to be Joe Burrow's protector. Um, and they just have struggled. And they've got to be better in the second half because you're about to face some really good teams. I had a teacher that used to, not give any Fs. He would give a D minus to anyone nice. that, that had nice bl- blow F. Well, he his whole thing was D minus was his favorite grade. He's like, you couldn't even fail properly. It was just, he said it was the ultimate <laughs> sign it. of disrespect that you would That's give someone great. a D minus. That's so he's like, good, I'm not even going to give you the satisfaction of, of taking that F home. You're going to have to explain a D minus to someone. That's pretty good, man. Yeah. I like it. It was very funny. I always liked that. Um. So yeah, would both of those guys are getting... I, I agree with you totally. And I, I think both of those guys are getting D minuses from, from my guy right now because <laughs> they, they, they were terrible. Uh, the, the thing for me with both of those guys is just how frequently they're getting beat one-on-one. Right. And individuals, you know, I mean, it's one thing to be, okay, there's miscommunication here or there. They, they didn't block this up properly, but too many times we've just seen Lyle Collins look like he's Bobby Hart. Just well, full rush and thrown on his tail. Yeah, the good part for Lyle Collins getting beat is Joe Burrow sees it. The bad thing for Jonah Williams getting beat is it's Joe Burrow's blind side. Yeah, good point. And he's had just as many as Collins has, has had, to be quite right. honest. I, I think we cut him a little more slack because he was a guy that none of us were quite as sold on. I mean, he had a okay to solid year, I think, last year, um, and he was still a younger guy. So, But Collins, they spent all this big money on in free agency, and, and people had really high expectations. So I, I think his performance has been a little bit more of a disappointment even than Williams. Skinny, who would you go with as the offensive MVP? It's pretty clear it's Joe Burrow, and it's not even a close second. Um, you know, Maybe people can argue Jamar Chase because they did lose the first game without him. Uh, and Rick, please read me these numbers because I, I crunched them. I'm doing them again off the top of my head. But it, it's, it's incredible that in the five wins what Joe Burrow has done um, – as a, as a quarterback and, and the numbers and the four losses, which show you, in my opinion, his worth. Yeah. He's, he's averaging or he's completing 73% of his passes in the wins for about 310 yards per game, 12 touchdowns, no interceptions, 
a passer rating of 123. Crazy. Just absurd. In the losses, he's completing about 67% of his passes for under 1,000 yards, 246 and a half yards per game. He has six touchdowns and six interceptions and a passer rating of 80.3. Guy means a lot, um, and, and him playing well means a lot, and that's but, carrying but a big burden. Don't you think, and I understand some of this goes into how he is playing, but don't you think as much as much of it being his play is how the offensive line is performing around him and what the offense well, looks like? And kind of the running game. But but to me, again, I, I, when you talk value, they're not winning games when he doesn't play well. No question. I mean, yeah, no, I don't disagree with the MVP call. I would just – I've seen not just from you, but other people have been pointing so much about like, look, when Joe Pearl plays this way, they're good. When Joe Pearl plays that way, they're bad. And it's like it's insinuating that the Bengals have this inconsistent quarterback who – Well, that's fair. That's, you that's, know what I mean? I and I don't think that's the yeah. case. I think they have an inconsistent offensive line. I think they may yeah. have an inconsistent play caller. I think their quarterback is there. Are things are there things he can get better at? Absolutely. Does he hold on to the ball at times too long in certain games in certain matchups? Probably. But overall, do I think those four losses are are mostly about him playing poorly, or do I think it's about the offense no, as a that, whole and the play point. caller? No. I would lean the latter. Yeah, and if if that's the way I wrote it, suggested that's really not. And I just wanted to point out the stark contrast that that how much of a how much of a burden that he has to carry that if he doesn't play well or his stats aren't great, they're not winning games. And maybe you could argue that's a lot of quarterbacks in the league, but some quarterbacks have running games to rely on too at times. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely fair to say the Bengals rely on him. He is kind of their identity right now, and he is their MVP. But I'd also, you know, I've I've seen other people kind of put it out there as like, if Joe Burrow plays well, they win. If Joe Burrow doesn't play well, they lose. And I think that's kind of a misleading argument right now. Yeah, no, that's fair. What about the defensive MVP, Skinny? Yeah, and this is going to suck, the, the answer. And you can certainly, again, you can disagree with any of these if you want, Rick. But Shinobi Awujie, and, and the numbers don't lie, pro football reference, I think uh, he got targeted 50 times, gave up 19 completions, a passer rating against him of 53.3. This, again, according to profootballreference.com, um, his PFF number, I didn't even bother to look up. I, that number just stood out to me. The point I didn't even need to look up his PFF number. Your eyeballs showed, I think, that he was playing at a Pro Bowl level, arguably an all-pro level. I, I can't imagine many cornerbacks played better than he did. Now, listen, I get they played a bunch of slop cor- quarterbacks that first X number of games, but that dude was great, and I think they're going to miss him a ton, especially now that you are going to play all these really good quarterbacks to great quarterbacks down the stretch. I don't think I really have an argument with that. He, he was fantastic, and he could definitely be considered the defensive MVP. I have no issue with that. I think had you asked me this question without me seeing your answer first – I probably would have leaned Trey Hendrickson, not necessarily because of the production, but I think when we saw him get dinged up and be out for, I mean, in and out of the lineup, I guess, for about a game and a half, I'd say. Is that, does that sound fair? Uh, Where he was limited? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. I thought there, it really showed. I thought their defense could not get to the quarterback at all. I thought in the Browns game, they were able to do whatever they wanted because he wasn't well, really able to, to rush the quarterback. And I know well, Cheeto went out in that game as well. Right. Well, to pony off of that, though, I could argue the DJ reader loss might be bigger because of what pass rush or stoutness he gives up up front. In the run game. Fair. Well, not only that, but but on first and second down pass rush where um, you're not getting much push up the middle. Now, he may not, you know, DJ doesn't get home very often, but he keeps quarterbacks from stepping up a lot of times. 
It also frees B.J. Hill up. We haven't seen B.J. Hill do a whole lot this year, and I think the reason he hasn't is he hasn't had D.J. Reader by his side for much of the year. Good point. Yeah, all three of those guys are really kind of the the keys to this defense. So you could throw Logan Wilson in there to some extent, but but those three to me are, are the top three for sure. Skinny, what grade would you give the Bengals coaching staff? We'll end on this one. Um, I, I gave him a B minus and it was more, I gave Lou Anaruma an A minus because of just how consistent that, that group was, uh, you know, for the most part in, in that first half, you know, you look back, I think they gave up less 20 points or less in six of the nine games, Rick. And in one of the three, they didn't give up 20 points. It was when Carolina scored 21 in garbage time, extended garbage time on Sunday after they had held them completely in check in, in that first half. He's done it despite some key injuries, um, you know, that, that stretch to start the year of, of seven games without giving up a, a second half touchdown allowed them to come back in a bunch of games, allowed them to extend leads in other games. So he got an A minus and Zach got a Zach and the offensive staff got a C to C plus. Um, the one thing I'll give them credit for is I do think they've adjusted on the fly as they've gone along, especially in the run game. And they've tried. Um, I thought Zach to his credit, started to, to change the way they started games. They decided, let's start taking the ball on offense because we had so many slow starts. I think that was a good decision. So he's done some good things, but I think overall, I'm going to go overall B minus, and it's more A minus for the one side of the ball, C to C plus on the other side of the ball. I like that, but I'd also say, had we not had the Carolina game just recently, I probably would be feeling differently about that B minus. I would probably feel Fair like enough. it should be lower. Well, Rick, but, if you read in that, in that part, too, I mean, if you crunch numbers, a lot of their offensive success is bloated by the three games against the NFC South teams. Yeah, definitely. And against the NFC South, they're averaging nearly 36 points per game and 450 yards with 3-0 and record. Um, but in the other six games, they are 2-4, and four, averaging 20 points a game and 317 yards. So it is a stark contrast between the two. All right, Skinny, let's get into some betting picks. How about that? We uh, both went four and four last week, which means I'm still at 38, 33 and one. You are at 35, 36 and one. You were just one point off the UK score, though. You had uh, 20 to 17 and it ended up being 21, 17. Um, Our favorite bets of the week, I had Ravens minus two and a half, which cashed. You had uh, Tennessee plus eight, which did 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 not. not Did not. And uh, Bengals are on a bye, so we'll only have three games this week. We'll start with Friday night, 7 p.m. East Carolina at Cincinnati. The Bearcats are a five and a half point favorite, and the total is 52. All right, I am vowing to go over 500 the rest of the season each and every week. So, oh, so wow. don't fade me yet. Don't fade me yet. That's my vow. I'm vowing. Okay. Wow. All right. Yeah, you're 35, 36, and one. So, yep. one so game there we under. Go. So, so, this is why I'm going to have to make some really hard decisions. And one of my hard decisions is here, I'm going to have to take East Carolina in the points. I don't think they get the win, but it just feels like this UC team isn't really a touchdown better than than any really good team at the moment. And East Carolina is a, is a good team. Um, back to back, actually, they've won three straight since losing to Tulane. And we could argue that Tulane might be the best team in this league, uh, but they've won three in a row against Memphis, UCF, and they pounded UCF by three touchdowns, then won at BYU 27-24. So they come in on a hot streak. I'm going to go UC to win it just because they're at home. I'll go Bearcats 27-24. So East Carolina and the under for me. Yeah, you're just under there at 51. Total is 52 for this. 
Uh, we're on the same sides on this one. I'm going to take that actually a step farther. I'm going to say ECU does win this game outright, uh, but obviously all you have to do is take ECU and the points here. 24-21 will be my final, so ECU and the under for me as well. UC is now 2-7 and seven against the spread this year, Skinny, and their games have gone under in five straight. ECU is 6-3 and three against the spread, 4-5 and five to the under. Saturday at noon, we've got Vanderbilt at Kentucky. The Wildcats are an 18-point favorite. The total is 48, Skinny. You could argue that this is look-ahead time because Kentucky's got Georgia next week, but it, it doesn't have the same impact as, as it would have if, if they were playing for the East title. So I think what this is, this is a, hey, we, we've but we've been through a gauntlet. Um, you know, we fought through that Missouri game, and it was a gutsy win on the road for them. I think Kentucky comes out guns a-blazing. I'll go Wildcats 45, Vandy 17. So Kentucky in the over for me. It's funny. I initially looked at this game and I looked at the whole slate this week and felt like a lot of times we're, we're homers here during this pick em segment and we take the, the local teams a lot. Part of that's because they've been successful the last few years. But this week I was thinking I might take all of the the not local teams and then I started looking at some of the metrics and what the numbers liked, and they really like UK in this matchup. I'm going to lean towards what you said. I feel like maybe this is more of a get-right game for Kentucky and, and a, a team that they match up well against. I'm going to go UK in the over as well, 35-14 for me. Kentucky is 6-3 and three against the spread, 1-8 and eight to the under, though. So taking the over here is a bit risky. Uh, Vandy is three and six against the spread, six and three to the over. So that's where some of the confidence comes from to take that over because Vandy's been hitting them. Their defense is atrocious. Yep. And that's where I'm kind of thinking Will Levis needs a big game. This is going to be kind of a get right game for the Kentucky offense. They'll put up some points finally. And and, and I feel like they'll create two to two to four turnovers as well. Yep. All right. Saturday at noon. Also, all all the local games are going to be done by like 3 p.m. here. So early weekend for you if you want to watch the local teams. Saturday at noon, we've got Indiana at Ohio State. The Buckeyes are a 40-point favorite. The total is 58.5 in this one. Skinny, I will let you know, the Buckeyes are 4-5 and five against the spread this year, but they are 0-3 against these spreads of 37.5 or more. Yeah, and that's why I got to take Indiana. I, I don't think Indiana's awful, awful, and I say that knowing they lost to Rutgers. Uh, it was on the road. They've lost to Nebraska. Um, but they – I don't say they hang around – but I just don't see them getting blown out by 40-plus in this one. I, it's a comfortable win for Ohio State. I think with what's coming down the road, if you're Ryan Dane, you get up big, you empty out the bench just to make sure you keep your guys fresh for two weeks from now. Now, they, they do have Maryland before Michigan, but still, what, why risk it at this point of the season? Uh, Ohio State gets out of here comfortably, but I'll go Buckeyes 45, Indiana 13. So IU and the that's under by a half a point. Yeah, 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 yes. 45-13. I'm going to stick with it. All right. So I'm, I've been a very similar boat in that I just – look, I mean, 0-3 against those huge spreads this year. And I mean, it's a lot of points. 40 is a lot of points to cover, even if you're as good as Ohio State is and you can score as much as they do. I'm going to go 52-14. So they stay just under that 40-point number. I still think Ohio State's going to blow them out. I still think Indiana absolutely stinks. But uh, to be quite honest with you, I would completely stay away from this number of 40 because I like OSU. I just don't like them covering 40. I'm going to say 52-14, Indiana and the over for me. Um, 
but I'll probably stay away from both of those picks, to be quite honest. You got a best bet? Let me have yours. I'm going to take Ole Miss at home getting 12 against Bama. Usually it's the Bama bounce back factor, and maybe it happens, but I don't – I. Old Miss has been pretty good. They did lose at LSU. They bounced back with a nice win on the road at Texas A&M. They've scored points on just about everybody. I mean, multiple points. Honestly, the, the team that probably held them down the, the least was they got 22 against Kentucky and 20 against LSU, but they, they can run it. Uh, they throw it well. They've played better defense than they've played under Lane Kiffin. And I think for them, it's a chance to get a signature win, and you're going to give me 12? I'm, I'm taking I'm sorry. Bama's got no college football playoff to play for. Um, if, if Nick Saban's making a bunch of switches and changes, I think that's going to be to the negative, at least for the first week. I, I know it's the Bama bounce back factor, but I'm, I'm going against it. That's just a too big of a number for me. All right. I'm going to go Bills minus three and a half at home against the Vikings. Even with the, the whole Josh Allen situation? Yes. Ooh. Same thing I did last week. The numbers are probably not going to be in my favor here, especially if uh, the Josh Allen situation plays out, but I'm just going to go with my gut instinct. It's done well for me this year on the NFL. All right. Yeah, you're right. Good point. All right. Let's get to in some ask any anything. We don't have a ton of questions here. One of them is from last week's show. Our guy Dan asked us, what are the biggest surprising moments in Cincinnati sports history for good and bad can be an achievement or event or more general trend? We said, hold on. Great question, but you needed a little bit of time to think about it instead of doing it right on the spot. So, Skinny, what have you come up with for us? I've come up with both, both of them come to college basketball for me. And it's it's UC going to the Final Four um, in, in that, what, 91-92 season. Th- Hugs, what, third season on the job. It just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, you know, he recruited a bunch of guys that were somewhat highly regarded. He just didn't know how those pieces were going to fit together. And he takes them to the Final Four. I, I, trust me, at that point in time when it happened, they just they came completely out of the blue. That's a pretty good one, to be quite honest. Yeah. What's the what's the uh, bad one that you had? The the bloody Sunday when you see and, and, and Xavier lost on the same day and the way they lost those games on the same day. Oh, those are pretty good answers. I got to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty you good. Got anything for me? Uh, no, I'll be honest. I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about this as, as, uh, you did in our, on our long prep show for today's podcast. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Um, skinny, do you think Sean Miller will end up missing any games this season? That's probably a better question for you. Um, I I would have thought if he was going to, it would have been early in this year, right? No, I don't think that um, okay, because right. the the IARP process was going to play out however it well, played out on and, its own and Louis, timeline. And Louis, and Louis, yeah, Louisville's just ended. You're right. Right. So they were they were going to be after Louisville no, no matter what. They're next in line now that Louisville has been given their punishment. Um, so I, I think Xavier, to be quite honest, a couple months ago, I was told that Xavier was expecting something more in the December to January time frame in terms of when you said you'd expect him right to miss a couple i do expect him to miss a couple although the way the last two punishments have gone from the iip i I mean louisville getting absolutely nothing you know other than i mean the ultimate slap on the wrist was a bit surprising um so i i would have been in the mindset of maybe two to four games before 
Yeah. Now I think I'm I'm leaning under. Uh, definitely on the four games, I think I'm leaning under, and I think it's it's legitimately possible that he gets none now. What I was told at the time a few months ago, after the hearing happened in August, where he went in front of the IARP committee, and you know there were people that spoke on his behalf, both from Xavier and Arizona, and uh, from what I heard, Book Richardson didn't even show up for his hearing. So that was probably something that went in Sean's favor, too, because I think some people were worried about, you know, what would Book Richardson say uh, about the situation? Yeah, the fact that he didn't even show up for his and and Sean's from from all indications went very well um, and the the right things were were said in there. I'm kind of leaning now towards he. He could get off with with nothing, and and if um, if he gets anything, I, I can't see it being over four games with the way the last two punishments have gone. Especially since this whole IARP thing is being dissolved after this, anyway. Like right, this is the right. last case they're hearing. Yeah, right. Skinny, what are your thoughts on the Colts hiring Jeff Saturday as interim head coach? I, I, it seems so completely irrational on, on so many levels, and, and this isn't meant as a dig to Jeff Saturday. I mean, he may have some of the greatest football knowledge of all kind, all time. Might be the perfect, uh, perfect guy at the perfect time. But this seems like an absolute move to bring a former great in as a figurehead, knowing he has no experience, calling some guy off the the quality control portion of the program to call plays, which he's never done before. This seems like the most blatant attempt at tanking without officially saying we're tanking. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. They're being obvious about it is the difference. I I mean, in terms of an interim head coach, like you're definitely punting on the season. That's obvious. And you are tanking at this point. I don't think there's like, don't try to sell me on. We think we're going to be competitive now, but I I will say like, once you go to the interim head coach route, I don't mind going with just a vibes guy going with someone that's just going to, people are going to enjoy being around and it's going to be good PR for you for the rest of the year. As you tank your way to a first round pick and, and you hire a real coach. I don't have any problem with this particularly, but I don't think this is a, a serious move that puts you in position to compete. No. And and let's face it. I mean, you know, the Colts have had, had success twice in, in their, in their, in their history. It's when they were able to draft Peyton Manning when they did. And when they were able to draft Andrew Luck, where they did and Luck then obviously retired and it left them in a lurch. And they've tried to do the whole piecemeal route, the Phillip rivers, the, uh, the, the Carson Wentz into then Matt Ryan, and it hasn't worked. So if you're Jim Irsay, as crazy as he's come off in all this, and as crazy as he's sounded in all of this when he has spoken, and he has sounded crazy, and he's this decision seems to be the decision of a loon, it may be crazy like a fox because he realizes, I'm not piecemealing this anymore. I need a, I, I want a quarterback, and the only way to get to a quarterback is we have to lose, and I can't come out and tell my coach, go lose. I can just get a guy that has no idea what he's doing because he's never done it, and then bring in some guy who's never called plays, and we're going to lose. Is there any chance this is a play at trying to get Peyton Manning back involved? Um, that's a great question. I'm going to say no, um, because part of me wonders if Peyton wasn't offered this to begin with. And he said, well, if you're going to do this, take Jeff. I was. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I was going to say this actually kind of feels like they asked Peyton and he said no. So they went to the next best thing. <laughs> So, dude, we joked in the Bengals media room about this because it happened as we were literally coming in on on whatever day that was, uh, Monday or Tuesday. I guess it was Tuesday. And and we were – I said – I guess it was Monday. And I, I said, you know, the funny part to me is he ought to bring Dan Orlovsky as his offensive coordinator and Ryan Clark as his defensive coordinator, bring all the guys off the set. Well, by God, the next day if I don't hear Dan Orlovsky on with Dan Patrick and Dan said, 
has he offered you the job as a quarterbacks coach? And he said, well, not directly. Yeah, goes, yeah but I told so, him I wanted it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was joking when I said it, but I'm like, well, by God, maybe he was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was funny, too. And I actually saw someone who mentioned, is Mina Kimes going to be calling the plays oh, yes. for you? <laughs> well, they, they, that Dan asked the same question along those lines of bringing, and he mentioned Mina. He said, hell, Mina's probably the most qualified of any of us. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, no, I mean, that, the, the whole thing just seems like a bit of a uh, PR play. It's, it's a feel-good thing for, for Colts fans. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's a tank job. It, it's, it's a way to make the tank more palatable. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I, that that's the way I saw it too. So um, I, I imagine this offseason they go and hire a real coach, right? I don't have to tell Brian Flores to tank and it comes back to bite us in the ass. I just <laughs> hire this guy who has no experience and he's going to tank. But he's a great guy and everybody in the organization loves him. So we'll tank and everybody will have a smile on their face. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, skinny, should Fred McGriff be in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> Talk about switching gears. I, I hope you're in this era where I can do this and you'll know what I'm talking about. This is the video that gets results. I, I don't know that reference. I'm sorry. Oh, it was it was him for some guy's pitch, some guy's batter system back in the day. Fred McGriff did a commercial, and that was on all the time on ESPN for whatever reason. This is the, and he pointed at the camera. This is the video that gets results. It was Tom something or other. Somebody can correct me if if you hear this. Rem, remind me the guy's name that he was talking about. Um. Ah, man. See, Fred McGriff is in that Tony Perez category to me. And Tony, you know, Tony made it. I I love Tony, but I don't think Tony Perez is a Hall of Famer. I'm sorry, Reds fans. I don't. Tony Perez and Fred McGriff to me are in the Hall of Very Good. And that's that's great. You had a great career. I just don't think you're Hall of Fame worthy. I don't. For me, a lot of times for Hall of Fame, Rick, especially with baseball, probably more than any other sport for me, it's, it's more of a feel. Like, were you a one of the premier players in your era. Fred McGriff was really good in his era, but I never thought of Fred McGriff as great. I yeah, there's never a point where he was the best player at his position. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of how I look at it too. I mean, the, especially with baseball, the numbers are so hard to compare with the way that and see to me, I think, I think we get caught up in numbers and, and, and some of that's just longevity based. Uh, I love Don Sutton and I loved Phil Necro, but I don't, those guys never felt like Hall of Fame pitchers. They just accumulated numbers because they and it, there's something to be said for longevity. But Hall, there's a lot of maybe there should be a Hall of Good somewhere. Well, that's like Frank Gore in the NFL too, right? Yes, longevity numbers that he put up. But it's like he was never one of the best running backs in the NFL. I mean, he was maybe top five at some point, but never was he considered the guy or even the second guy. Yeah. Tip my cap to your, to your longevity and all those things and your professionalism. Same for Fred McGriff, same for Tony Perez and all those guys. But I mean, no, no, I'm, I'm going to say no. I'm going to assume this is some type of inside joke that I missed from maybe your appearance on since 360 recently, but our uh-huh. guy, Austin Elmore said, do we have good players or good chemistry? It's not a, from a recent one. Tony Pike likes to play that all the time because, because <laughs> I, I, I don't even remember where it came up from, but I, I'm a big I'm I'm a big believer. Everybody always talks about oh that that team's got great chemistry, and I think chemistry matters to a degree in basketball and football. I've never believed it matters one iota in baseball because Agreed. I don't need good chemistry to go up there and hit the pitch, and I don't need good chemistry to go catch that fly ball, and I don't need good chemistry to go out and pitch because it's me against the hitter. And I, I think that that's 
I, I always love fans. Oh, this team's got great chemistry. You know why they got great chemistry? Because they're 50 games over 500. Oh, oh this team, boy, they must, they must hate each other and they're awful in the club. Yeah, because they suck and it's no fun to be in the clubhouse. So these guys are scrappy and they're running the bases for right, each other. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's always been my big running gag of give me good players over good chemistry. Good, good, good players usually tend to win you games and winning games, no matter how much you, you, you may hate each other on surface. You, you, you still enjoy the winning part of it. Yeah, it creates good chemistry. I, I'm glad Austin asked that, though. That was good. Uh, the World Cup starts in a few weeks, so if you are flipping channels at 4 p.m. on a weekday and a game is on, do you stop and watch any or keep on going, Skinny? I'd probably stop and watch a little bit. Um, I, the, the World Cup does fascinate me. Just it, it, I mean, I'm not going to sit there and, and, and watch a match from start to finish, probably. Um, but, yeah, if I'm flipping through at a 4 o'clock on a day and – I'm trying to get to a Gunsmoke rerun or a, a Rifleman rerun on MeTV. <laughs> I'd probably stop and watch. All right. Fair enough. Uh, that actually looks like all I got this week. All right. There we go. Appreciate it as always. Make sure you send those questions in. We obviously have no Bengals recap podcast, so we'll be back next week. We, got, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. The Bengals back in action in Pittsburgh next week. A lot of college basketball to talk about. As we mentioned, UC and NKU will play the day before we do this podcast. So we'll have a lot of stuff to talk about, especially college basketball related on next week's podcast. For Rick Roaring, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope edition presented by Ryan Kiefer of First Community Mortgage.